Shalom, and welcome to Via Hafta Yisrael, a Hebrew phrase which means you shall love Israel. We hope you'll stay with us for the next 30 minutes as our teacher, Dr. Baruch, shares his expository teaching from the Bible. Dr. Baruch is the senior lecturer at the Zera Avraham Institute based in Israel. Although all courses are taught in Hebrew at the Institute, Dr. Baruch is pleased to share this weekly address in English. To find out more about our work in Israel, please visit us on the web at loveisrael.org. That's one word, loveisrael.org. Now, here's Baruch with today's lesson. We know that God is sovereign. He is omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful. There is nothing that is difficult for God to do. God has perfect foreknowledge, meaning God knows everything and he knew everything always. Nothing surprises God. And that's why the scripture that we're going to be looking at in this study is so problematic for some because they doubt the biblical God. They want to look at a scripture and we're going to be dealing with one very significant individual in history. A man in Hebrew called Korish, you might know him better as Cyrus, the one who set the Jewish people free out of his empire to go back to Judah specifically in order to resettle the land and to build the temple. And this Cyrus obeyed God. He was used mightily by God for the purposes of God, and he was not Jewish. This tells us that God is free to use whomever he wants to use. And within this scripture is a most significant verse that deals with choice. That God, he has created this world in a way that demands that we choose and that we choose according to his will. What his revelation reveals to us. Well, with that said, take out your Bible and look with me to the book of Isaiah and chapter 45. The book of Isaiah and chapter 45. Now, in the first 13 verses that we're going to study in this lesson, we see some principles. First and foremost, it is good to agree with God. And secondly, it is futile to disagree with him. God is God alone. There is no other. And therefore, because this God who has revealed himself is the creator of all things, it is wise for us to submit to his plans and his purposes. What God has willed in the end, it will be done. God will bring about the conclusion of his will. The question is, and God already knows the answer to this, but you and I don't. Are we going to be part of that end? Are we going to be in his will when he brings about the conclusion of his purposes? In other words, are we going to be part of God's kingdom? If you receive the gospel, or if you have already received the gospel, you will be part of that kingdom. The question is this, how much am I going to submit, surrender, yield myself 
to the things of God. And again, wisdom demands that we fully, absolutely submit. Well, look with me to verse 1. Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 1. We read here, Thus said the Lord to his Messiah. Now, the word here, Mishicho, is his anointed one. But the term is literally Mashiach with the third person possessive pronoun attached to the noun. So it's Mishicho from Mashiach, Hamashiach Shiloh. And it speaks about how the Messiah is one who is anointed by God for a purpose. In this case, a kingdom purpose. Now, he is not speaking literally to the Messiah of Israel, but one who God anoints, that is, a king, in order that he would submit to the purposes of God. And we learn something. If this king, this mighty one, if he is wise enough to submit to God, how much more should all the rest of humanity? Once again, verse 1. Thus said the Lord to his Messiah. In this case, the anointed one is Koresh, that is Cyrus, whom, and God is speaking, I have taken hold of his, his right hand. Now, taken hold of is a word that derived from the Hebrew word to give strength. So it's a play on word. God has taken hold of his right hand. And what we see here in this passage, when it says this, we find that in doing so, it is to strengthen him that he might carry out what God wants him to do. And what is that? Keep reading. To subdue before him nations and the loins of kings. Now, notice, he says here, the loins. This is the waist, and this is also, in the biblical mind, a place of strength, the foundation of an individual. And so it simply says that he is going to read carefully. He is going to subdue before him nations. This is chorus, what God's going to do through him. And he is going to open up the loins of King Ming. He's going to render them powerless in order that he, this is Korish, that he should open up before him the, the double doors and the gates should not be closed. All of this is poetic language to teach us that Korish is going to have an impact over all of his empire. There are many nations, many kings under him. And he is going to show that he is supreme because God is using him. God has called him. God is going to do something through this man, opening up the empire that he rules over for the purposes of God. And we'll see what that is in a moment. Verse 2. I, before you, I will go. And the crooked place, places I will straighten. 
and the, the copper or bronze doors I will break, and iron bars I will cut. And what it's simply saying is, no matter what the obstacles are, the crooked things he can straighten, the hard things he can break, God is going to be successful in this objective. And we know what he's speaking about. And that is using Cyrus in order to bring the Jewish people back to the land of Judah so that the purposes of God can continue and ultimately be fulfilled. And I said this before and I'll say it again because it's foundation. In the same way that, that God brought the Jewish people back to the land, and when I say Jewish people, the descendants, the physical descendants of Jacob, back to the land for Messiah's first coming. He is also going to reestablish that nation and that he is going to bring back the descendants, the physical descendants of Jacob once more to the land of Israel, that land that he gave to Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov in order that Messiah might come a second time and bring a conclusion to the purposes of God. And that conclusion is the establishment of the kingdom of God. Verse 3. And I will give to you treasures of darkness. Now, what does that mean, treasures of darkness? Well, it's simply speaking about the treasures of this world. This is a olam shachoshik, a land and a world of darkness. So Cyrus, he is going to benefit financially. Now, he's not seeking that. But what God is saying here is, because of your obedience, you are going to find prosperity. And then the next word is a hidden thing that is made secret. And many put here about also the treasures or the wealth because it was very common for people to hide things, to bury things in the ground because there was not necessarily a bank or some other place that you could always find to, to hide something, to save something, to secure it. So he's saying here, those things that are hidden in the world that no one knows about, I'm going to give to you. God is going to bring about a redistribution of wealth to, to Korish, that is Cyrus, because of his, his faithfulness. And he says, on account that you might know that I am the Lord, the one who calls you by name, the God of Israel. Now, here's what's important. This is for us. Remember that that Yeshayahu, that is the prophet Isaiah, is prophesying this approximately in the 8th century B.C. It was in the 6th century B.C. that the Babylonian captivity began. And therefore, it was 70 years later that the captivity took, came to a conclusion, took a change, ended. And it was Cyrus who sent the people back to the land. So we're talking about approximately 200 years at least, if not more, whereby God is speaking a name 
of someone who wasn't even born. This is what this verse is referring to us. The reader when he says, on account that you will know that I am the Lord, the one who calls by your name. And who is the one calling? The God of Israel. He mentioned Cyrus by name long before he was born. And all of this is why, now look at verse 4, on account that my servant Jacob, here we're speaking about Jacob meaning the descendants of Jacob, on account of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen one, I have called to you by name, and I have named you, but you have not known me. What it speaks about here is simply the fact that that Cyrus had not known the God of Israel. He was not aware of the purposes or the plans, but nevertheless, God chose him because of God's purpose for the Jewish people. We need to understand verse 4 carefully. It's on account of my servant Jacob, my chosen one Israel, that God is, is making known to Cyrus this purpose, this will that he has, that he's called him by name, going back to verse 1. Now look at verse 5. I, the Lord, there is no other except me. There is no other God. And he says, and I have girded you. Now, this word for gird can be surround or embrace. It's simply speaking about God's sovereign choice of Cyrus, just as he's made a sovereign choice of the Jewish people to be used for his purpose. So it's not saying that Cyrus is a favorite of God, nor are, are Jacob or Israel a favorite of God. The Bible says that God is not a respecter of persons. He uses whom he wills. And he is going to use Cyrus. And Cyrus responded obediently. And he is going to accomplish what was set out to do. Meaning God is going to accomplish his purposes for this prophecy. Verse 5 again. I am the Lord. There is no other except me. There is no God. Meaning Except me, there is no God. I have girded you, but you have not known me. Now, this speaks simply about God's ability to choose whom he wants. It wasn't because Cyrus had a personal revelation. I need to seek God. I need to find God. I want to serve God. God revealed himself to Cyrus revealed his purposes to this one. Verse 6, on account that they should know from the ones that are in the east unto the west, on account that they should know from the rising of the sun until it's setting, until it's going down in the west, for nothing, Ephes is the Hebrew word, nothing, zero, besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Now, the context, because there are, are some to think when they hear the phrase, there is nothing else but me, 
That has led those who do not understand scripture to say, everything is God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I alone and God, there's no other God except me. This whole concept that that creation becomes the creator is, is heresy. It has no basis in the scripture. So what God is saying here in verse 6, for nothing, there is no other, everything else is nothing compared to me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Verse 7. Now, I mentioned that verse 7 has, or this 45th chapter has a very important verse, and it's verse 7, where it says, and I want to read this verse in Hebrew, Yotzer Or, which means he forms light, Uvore Choshek, and he creates darkness. Ose Shalom, he makes peace, Uvore Ra, and he creates evil. I am the Lord, the one who does all of these. Now, the one that's problematic is where it says here, he creates evil. Notice it does not say he does evil, but he creates it. What does that mean? What is the proper way to understand it? It's very simple. God created this world with the ability to choose there is right and wrong in this world god created a world that has right and wrong in it god does nothing wrong god does nothing evil he is not part of it but for there to be love for there to be worship for there to be to be obedience there has to be a choice and that's why choice in relationship to free will is so important some will say well well this is not the case because we are dead spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins that's true but what does that death mean that we have no relationship with god that we are dead spiritually but realize that being the case god has equipped us with a matspoon with a conscience and with that conscience, we can know a degree of right and wrong. We are separated from God. We are dead. We have no eternal life. We're heading to judgment and eternal condemnation. But we can encounter revelation. And through that conscience, we can have a degree of understanding. I've said many times. You can take someone who's lost, dead in sin and trespass and ask them, is lying good? Say, no, why not, not lie? Well, why should one not lie? Well, it says here, thou shall not lie. Even though they may not be a believer, I know many people in the building that I live in, in the neighborhood, very, very few believers. But there's many who would say, there's a God of Israel. I believe he exists and I can read his word and they can agree with the same things, many of the same things that I agree with because the Bible says it. They can say, yes, the scripture says it. I respect this book, even though they're dead in their sins and trespasses. So when it says here that God, he creates all of these things, darkness and light, 
peace and evil. It's simply saying that God creates all things and within his creation is choice, a, a necessity to choose. And whether we are saved or not, all people make decisions. And there's real consequences to those decisions. Move on to verse 8. Now, verse 8 begins a, a, a different poetic description related to what we've just talked about, but it's highly poetic. Why? Well, he says, it's a word for dripping, like a rain shower that sprinkles. So the heavens sprinkle up above, and the skies, they, they pour out righteousness. Now, this speaks about God at work. God is moving. God up above is working at this world. That's what he's saying. And the earth is going to open up. We're going to see that something's going to be the outcome of, of God's plan and purposes. The earth is going to open up and is speaking here about the heavens and the earth. The earth is going to open up and they are going to do fruitful salvation. That's what it says. It's going to produce the fruitfulness of salvation and righteousness is going to spring up together. And why is it going to come about? Because I, the Lord, am its creator. I've created it. That's what God has done. He's made it to be thus. You say, well, we're living in an evil world. It's talking about a change that God's going to bring into this world. So one day from heaven, from the, the skies above, from, from the, the heaven above, God is going to rain down. And because of the activity of heaven in this world, the activity of God, salvation is going to, to be fruitful. And righteousness is going to spring up together with it and all of this points to god where god says i the lord have created it verse 9 now god's going to do this but remember what we learned in the previous verse there's choice there's a decision to be made and now god is going to speak for the next few verses about those who contend against him who are not like cyrus who submit who obey but those who contend against god look at verse 9 it begins with the hebrew word hoy which means how bad it's going to be for who woe to the one who contends with his maker someone who contends at odds with someone who is is working against his maker now notice god has said he's the creator there's no other God but him. So when we are not submitting to his will, what's the outcome of this? We are contending. We are rebelling against God. And this is what he's going to talk about for a few verses. How awful it's going to be. Woe to the one who contends with his creator. And he talks about, and in order to understand this, many translations add words, but it's simply the word for a, a, a potter shed with the shreds of, of the land. 
And all it's saying is this. If you take broken pottery and you take these things and you put them together, what happens? Nothing good. We find that that putting shreds of pottery, broken pottery with other broken pottery doesn't accomplish anything. It has no purpose. So it's just an idiom to say to contend with God is, is futile. It still serves no purpose. It won't produce anything usable. And that's why we see in that same verse, the next part, will one say, will the clay, that, that homer is a word, the material, will the clay say to the, the creator, the one who forms, the one who works with the clay, why have you done this? Now, it makes no sense. The clay doesn't give the orders. The clay doesn't say, make me like this. I want to be this. The clay is silent. It is the, the potter who makes the decision, who forms the clay according to his will, his purpose, his desire. So it, it implies a negative answer. Will the clay say to its, its maker, why have you done this? And then it says, and your, your work, that is the outcome of what you've done, will it say there, there is no hands to him? Meaning, will, will it criticize and say something? Why have you done this when it has no hands? It has no ability to do anything. So it's simply the, the foolishness. Of, of clay and what was made to to argue with the one who made it and this just simply is a description of how ridiculous it is for human beings to to question and argue and contend against God now look at at verse verse 10 again it begins in the same way boy how bad how awful it's going to be for one to say to the father, why, why have you beget me? And to the mother, why have you gone through labor? So it's simply now looking and making it personal, not uh, material like, like potter shreds and, and clay, but now human beings. Would a, a child say to his father, why, why did you give birth to me? How dare you give me life? Why, mom, did you go through labor for me? It's idiotic. And one who says that is not honoring his parents. And therefore, it's not going to be well for him. Verse 11. Thus said the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Now, over and over, God is speaking and he's revealing truth. He's telling us what should be and what ought not be. Verse 11. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and His Maker. Now, His Maker, many people, it's talking about the one who created creation. Whether it's speaking about the one who created Israel, or the one who created even Cyrus in this position. We can think of it in the broadest and the most narrow ways. Why? One, no one should question God, argue with God, question what he's up to. 
And God says concerning, now most see it as a change because it says his creator, singular. But when we move to the next part of this, it's speaking about another section of the verse where it's plural and it's they. So will they say concerning the coming things? Do we have a right to to challenge and to correct God? That's a sin to think that a perfect God needs correction. So he's saying here, God has a purpose. Who are we to say and ask concerning the, the things that are going to be? And notice these things are going to be, who do they concern? It says concerning my sons. And the sons here are speaking about the people of God. And concerning the work of my hand, should you command me? Meaning should, once again, just like the ridiculousness of a, a piece of clay or a broken piece of pottery, for them to give advice to the potter or for a newborn child to think that he has a right to question his parents. All of this is rebelliousness. It's turning things upside down. It's incorrect. It is against the order of God. So concerning the coming things, are we going to, to ask God? And here this asking is challenging him concerning his sons, meaning his people. And concerning the work of his hands, are, are you going to command me, command God in other words? Verse 12, I have made the earth and man upon it. I have created. So God is saying, I'm the creator. Don't you learn from the examples I've just given to you? I'm the creator. I'm the one who made, formed, established this world. And we see this, this world has order to it, purpose attached to it. So look again at verse 12. I have made the earth and man upon it. I have created. My hands have stretched forth the heavens and all their hosts, meaning all the heavenly hosts. This is probably a reference to all the angelic beings. God has done that. Not you, not me, not any human being, not any aspect of his creation. God, the creator, has done that. We are in no position to argue with God. He says, and all the heavenly hosts I have commanded. God's the one that gives these angels, these angelic beings, commands, not humanity. Verse 13. Now, most believe that verse 13 goes back to speaking distinctly about Cyrus. God began, I have a plan, and it concerns my anointed one. Korish, Cyrus. And now he's simply saying, don't, don't question me. You have no right to argue, contend, disagree with what I'm up to. I know what I'm doing. I've created the heavens and the earth. I stretch forth everything in perfect order. And therefore he says, look at verse 13, our last verse. I have raised him up. And this word for raising up is, it's likened to one who was asleep, 
What do you know when you're asleep? Things can happen about you. You don't know. But when you wake up, you see things differently. And this is what God is saying about Cyrus, that he has moved in his life in such a way. It's like that he was sound asleep, oblivious to things, but now God has woken him up in righteousness. And all of his ways I have straightened. He will build my city. This is what Cyrus does. He gives the edict for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. He will build my city. And notice this. And my exiles he will send forth. This is the Jewish people in that empire that Cyrus took over. That he is going to have the exiles of God, the Jewish people, return back to the law, to the, to the land. And then he says, not with a price. I'm not, not paying him. Now, we saw earlier that God's going to bless him. But the point is, he's not doing it for a price. He's not accepting a bribe. This is not what motivates him. The implication is this, that God has manifested himself to Cyrus. And this one wants to submit. This one wants to do God's will. So let me ask you, what about you? God has revealed his truth to you through this book, through the Bible. Are you committed or do you say, God, I'll do it, but this is my price. God, I, I want this bribe underneath the table. Only when I get what I want will I serve you. That's not faithfulness. That is idolatry. What we see is this. All of verse 13 once more. I have raised him up, awakened him in righteousness. And all of his ways I will straighten. He will build my city and my exiles he will send forth. Not with a price, not according to a bribe, says the Lord of hosts. And why does this verse conclude with that expression, the Lord of hosts? It speaks about God's power, God's authority, his sovereignty to bring about the fulfillment of what he has promised. This section of scripture speaks about a biblical God who is omnipotent, who is omniscient. His foreknowledge is perfect. He knows all things. He's all powerful. And because of this, we know and trust in his sovereignty. The God who is forever wise. Well, I'll close with that until next week. And we work our way through the second half of this 45th chapter of Isaiah. Until then, shalom from Israel. Well, we hope you will benefit from today's message and share it with others. Please plan to join us each week at this time and on this channel for our broadcast of loveisrael.org. Again, to find out more about us, please visit our website, loveisrael.org. There you will find articles and numerous other lectures by Baruch. These teachings are in video form. You may download them or watch them in streaming video. Until next week, may the Lord bless you in our Messiah Yeshua, that is, Jesus, as you walk with Him. Shalom from Israel. Thank <laughs> you.